So we are looking at the book of Isaiah. And now the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. And so we're not going to cover every one of those. Last or two weeks ago, our first week together, I looked at the first five chapters of Isaiah, which basically can be summarized as Israel is in a heap of trouble because they have not acted in line with the grace and the love that God had shown them. In other words, they were taking advantage of God. They were not living in response to his mercies. They were trying his patience in lots of ways. Um, and yet, you know, what's amazing is, um, well, it's amazing always, really. Any chapter of the Bible, you should always be amazed that there's another chapter after that. Because every single chapter of the Bible is plenty of reason why God should wash his hands of this whole project and just decide he's had enough of us. The Bible uh, says many, many, many times that God is patient. And you may not feel that that's true, but all I can tell you is um, every chapter in the Bible is ample evidence that God is a patient God. Um, we, we learned, you know, people were doing all kinds of horrific things in Isaiah's day. Things that you and I would be upset about. Even if you're not a church-going person or a Christian person, you would have been upset at the injustice and the way people were accepting bribes and, and therefore taking advantage of the poor and the weak and the widows and the orphans and all those kind of people. The kind of stuff that would bother anybody was going on in Israel. And yet God does something maybe expected but maybe unexpected. And that's what this chapter tonight is about. Isaiah is worshiping God in the temple, which was the place where Jews went to worship God. And he has a remarkable experience that he tells us about here in chapter 6. So let's, let's read this together. If you have a Bible, we're in Isaiah chapter 6. If you have the paper, please follow along as I read. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. 
Make the heart of this people calloused, Isaiah. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. Beautiful in some ways, very hard in other ways. And yet, Lord, it's all your word. We pray, Lord, that you would preserve us from being those who would pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like and instead help us to submit to everything that you reveal here about yourself and about your plan and about us. We ask that you would send your spirit to humble us that we might do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do people react in the presence of the holy? Does our culture even have much of a concept of the holiness of God? Or the holiness of anything? I would submit to you that we actually do. There are are certain things and certain people that when you're in their presence, you just sort of have to pinch yourself and say, whoa, this is kind of cool. I had a few of those experiences in my life. It's kind of experiences, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I was in a movie with Johnny Cash. <laughs> I, you know, I just like to say that, tell people. I didn't have much of a part. As a matter of fact, if you come to our Christmas party, I'll show you the little part that I had. But all I can tell you is, to be in the same room with Johnny Cash, it's just cool. It was just cool. But there's a sense in which, like, you want to be around someone like that, someone that that everybody looks up to and reveres, and yet there's another part of you that is really self-conscious. Really self-conscious. At one point, you like want to be close to the man, but at another level, you want to disappear because you're afraid that you might say the wrong thing and look like a complete idiot. And I've had that experience a few times. I think that that sort of simultaneous attraction, and yet, I don't know if you'd call it repulsion, or a sense of, whoa, this is a little too intense, I think is a good way for us to begin to get our minds and our hearts around this idea of being in the presence of the holy. There was a, um, a man named Rudolf Otto who years ago wrote a book about the holy and uh, sort of testing out the idea of the holy, that virtually every culture in the world has some concept of the holy. And in virtually every one of these cultures, you find this same twofold response sort of a sense of attraction. We want to be in the presence of the holy, and yet a little bit of fear, a little bit of hesitancy, a little bit even of repulsion. I'm not sure that we can stand to be in the presence of the holy. And you see that here in this picture that we have. I think that we're not even very comfortable, as much as we may worship certain people and hold them up on a pedestal, when you actually get to meet them, sometimes it's not what you thought it was going to be. Now, sometimes, of course, they disappoint you. Sometimes 
it's actually weird and awkward to be in the presence of people that you hold up as sort of our culture's version of holy. Now, here in this, in this text, we have this idea of holiness, and it's a hard one to get our mind around. Uh, but, but, but it's so important to understand. Isaiah gives us a very, very vivid picture here of what's going on. He says that in the day, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on the throne. And you might think, okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, it is a big deal. It's, it's like one of those times where you go to church and all of a sudden you're caught up in the fact that this is not just playing around. This is real. My eyes have been opened to see what's really going on. What's really going on. And as he begins to get a picture, um, he gets this picture of God filling the temple. And imagine this picture, right? The seraphim. Do you know what the seraphim are? We don't know exactly what seraphim are. That's why it's translated seraphs. Um, seraphim is the plural in the Hebrew. And we basically just transliterate it. What it means is burning ones. Burning ones. Angelic beings of some sort. We don't know exactly, but they've got six wings. They're kind of bizarre creatures. With two of them, they're covering their feet, which is a Middle Eastern cultural way of expressing, I'm not worthy to be in the presence. It's sort of a way of saying that I am ashamed or I don't belong here because the person that I'm in, in the presence of is so much greater than me. Probably has something to do with the fact that in this culture, people don't wear shoes, they wear sandals. And so their feet are just naturally one of the unclean parts of their body, right? So you cover your feet, right, in the presence of somebody great. But not only that, they're covering their eyes. They can't even look. Even the burning ones can't look upon God. And their voices, their voices shake the temple. Now, this is a pretty substantial structure, this temple. But their voices, the voices of the burning ones that can't even look at God. Do you understand? God, like, imagine if God opens his mouth. I mean, if the voices of the seraphim are shaking the, the, the very core of the temple, what's going to happen when God opens his mouth? But notice the way Isaiah starts this picture. It's in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, why is that an important detail? The reason that's an important detail is in this world, in this world, and in still a lot of places in our world, when the king dies, it is the time that that people and that country is the most vulnerable that they'll ever be. It took quite a while for various you know, countries and peoples to develop systems whereby power could be passed down from one ruler to next without incredible social disheaval and danger, vulnerability. So this is a very, very dangerous time, a time when it's not sure what's going to happen. Not only that, we know from the rest of the book and from actually other sources, even beside the Bible, that this is the year, the year King Uzziah died, is the year that Assyria, the superpower to the north, of Israel has started to make their move. See, Israel is in an interesting place. They're right in the middle of the crossroads uh, there in where they are in the Middle East between the two superpowers of their day. You have Egypt, 
I, I can't keep it straight, but Egypt and Assyria, or Assyria and Egypt, this way or that. But one's down here to the south, one's to the north. And to get at each other, they're always going you know, through Israel. Now, at the time that Isaiah is first uh, writing his book, Assyria is weakened for various reasons, distracted, and they haven't really turned their attention to Israel. Egypt also is weakened, but now things are about to change. So King Uzziah has died, and Assyria is on the move. It's a difficult, dangerous time. The whole nation is confusion, and the new king has not yet really gotten himself established. And so I, I think what we see here is a beautiful picture. What do you need more than anything else when your world is turning upside down? Because you have to imagine what it's like. Now, we live in a country where you get to vote on the rulers, right? But for most people in the history of the world, they've been very much disconnected from the seat of power. The average person in Israel is basically like a little peon who doesn't really have any power or any influence. They're very dependent upon the king. And now the king is dead. Who's going to care for them? Now, actually, one of the themes in the book of Isaiah is how God himself is the true king who will meet their needs. And yet God's people throughout the book of Isaiah are continually, continually looking to other kings. And it's so ironic as the book develops because here at the very beginning of the book, the thing that God reveals himself to be is, I am the king. I am the Lord Almighty. Now, whenever in the Bible it has that word Lord and it's all capitals, do you know what that means? That means there's a specific Hebrew word that's being translated there, and it's the word Yahweh. It's not just a, a more generic word for God like Elohim. It's a word that's the personal covenantal name that God has given his people. This is my personal name, the name which I give to you because I married myself to you. And this wonderful picture that God gives Isaiah, I am the Lord, right? The one who cares for you intimately and personally, who has established a relationship with you, my people Israel. I am the Lord Almighty. What a beautiful combination. The Lord Almighty. And I think sometimes we can tend to think that God is just high and mighty, but he's the Lord Almighty. He's the one who personally cares for his people. And he chooses this moment to reveal himself as the Lord Almighty. In that name, Lord, is God's commitment because he has married himself to his people and said, I will be your God, you be my people. And now at this time of great vulnerability, he reveals himself as the Lord who's committed to them and the Lord who is almighty. Isaiah is privileged to get what all of us need when our world is being turned upside down, a vision, a picture of the fact that there is a throne and it's occupied. And it's occupied by one who cares for us. The Bible, a lot of places actually brings together this combination. One of my favorite is in the end of one of Peter's letters where he encourages us to pray by saying that the Lord has a mighty hand and he cares for you. And I think it's hard for us sometimes to keep those two things together. We tend to think maybe, okay, maybe the Lord does have a mighty hand, but I don't know if he really cares about me. I mean, he's so mighty. Why would he bother with me? Why would he care about my little silly boy problems or, you know, about, you know, my parents and the way they fight all the time? Why, why would he care about that? He's got much more important things to do. Okay, I get the Lord's mighty, but 
doesn't care for me. And then other people would say, well, I know the Lord cares. I know that he's close to the brokenhearted, but I don't know if he really has power to do much about it. It's great to know that he's sympathetic and he empathizes with me, but I don't know. Is he powerful? Here we get the Lord Almighty on the throne. There is a throne. It doesn't matter whether the throne of Israel is occupied or not. What really matters is God is on his throne. And it's fascinating that God is on his throne even when it looks like everything is falling apart. Yet God is on his throne, and Isaiah gets to see that, right? It's vital for Isaiah and for us to see that the most important fact, the defining fact of the day, of the moment, of your moment right now, is not who's in charge in Washington, It's not what classes you signed up for. It's not what job prospects you have when you graduate. The most important defining fact of your reality and of our universe is that God is on the throne, right? And the whole earth is full of his glory. There's a real king who's sitting on his throne, and it makes all the difference in the world. But for Isaiah... This isn't actually a very comforting vision, is it? What does this vision do to Isaiah? I mean, you can understand. It's amazing. It's loud. It's thunder. It's frightening. There's smoke. Things are shaking, right? What does he say? Look at verse 5. Woe to me. I am ruined. Now, that, now that, um, that word translated ruined, is it's a very strong, it's a very strong um, phrase. So is this, um, I am undone kind of is how it's translated in some translations. And I think the I am undone actually gets at the, the heart of this word a little better than the I am ruined. It literally means I am coming apart at the seams. In the presence of God, I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm dissolving in his presence. I can't stand it. I can't be here. Why? Well, two reasons. One, because this is a frightening experience. The God who reveals himself in the Bible is not a pushover. He's not the big guy upstairs who just lives to do our bidding. He's not God on a leash who lives to make you happy and is continually sort of asking your forgiveness for not really coming through for you the way that you want him to, that's not the God of the Bible at all. The God of the Bible is the one whose glory fills the earth, whose very presence is frightening and makes you feel as if you're coming apart at the seams. Do you remember, I mean, what is, what is Isaiah thinking? I've seen the Lord. I've seen a vision of the Lord. Do you, I mean, he knows his Bible, What happened to Moses when he wanted to see God? You remember what happened? He's the only one, the Bible says, who saw God sort of face to face or talked with God. Mouth to mouth is actually how it says in the Hebrew, but we don't translate it that way because it means something different in our culture. But but it, but it it was an intimate kind of experience that was different than even than the other prophets, right? And yet when Moses was going to see God. Do you remember what God had to do? He put him in this cleft in this rock, and he passed by, and he let Moses see his hindquarters. We're not sure exactly what that means, but what does that mean to see God's backside? But that's basically what it says. You can't look on his face, 
And yet even looking upon his backside, when he came down from the mountain, he was shining so much that other people had to, you know, basically it was like Rudolph. You know, it's like, man, turn that thing off, right? We can't handle this. Just you being in the presence and not even seeing his face, right? The Bible is trying as best it can to get you to understand that you don't have any categories for this. We don't have any categories for what's going on here. Isaiah is trying to get us to understand, if you stood where I stood, you would feel like you were coming apart at the seams. Now, I think that one of the reasons that the good news of the gospel, that God, the holy God, would invite people who are not holy into his presence to have a relationship with him, I think one of the reasons that that so often feels ho-hum for us is that we have such little regard for the transcendence of God. Some people have said that the holiness of God, the best way to think of it is to think of it as the godness of God. It's everything that makes God God and you not God. It's every way that he's different than you. In other words, holiness is not just one attribute of his, like one part of him. His attributes aren't parts anyway. But, but a lot of people, I think, think of, well, God has got some holiness, and then you mix in a little love and a little mercy, and you kind of put it all together, and you get God. No, the holiness of God is a way of describing everything about him. His love is a holy love. His wrath is a holy wrath. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. The God we deal with is the holy God. Annie Dillard, I think, captured this so well in one of her books where she, she talks about this. I put this quote down here. This is one of my, my favorite quotes. I always try and find a place to use it, and this is the place. <coughs> she says this. Think about, think about church, and think about your expectations when you come to church, when you come to RUF. Do we understand what it means that we are hearing from God's Word tonight? This God. She says it this way. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Do you worship a God who is not under your control? Do you worship a God who can do whatever he wants? Now, I know sometimes people don't, don't like that idea of God, but one thing that the Bible wants to make very clear is that God is God and we're not. And actually, that's good. That's a good thing. Now, I think a big part of what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus is getting used to that and coming to enjoy that rather than despising it and grumbling about it. And it takes a work of God's Holy Spirit to actually make that happen in your life. But this is the God we deal with. Do we know who we're dealing with? God's glory fills not just the temple here, but the whole earth. And, and if we don't understand the holiness of God, 
the hugeness of God. It's difficult to really understand mercy and why it's so astounding. I think it's, this, it's, it's the particular danger of people who have been around religious stuff and who've been around Christian circles or maybe who've read the Bible a lot or went to church all their life or come from good Christian families. The particular danger is to take this stuff for granted and to forget who God really is. And, and when we forget who he really is, it, it's a short step there to losing sight of how big a deal it is that this holy God, this holy God who's offended by our very presence would do something about that and make a way for us to be reconciled to him. Now, the, the way the Bible tries to get it, the holiness of God, like I said, is to use this word three times. Holy, holy, holy. Nowhere else in the Bible is anything repeated three times. But here, holy, holy, holy. Right? God's holiness is the supreme truth that we have to reckon with. And without it, mercy and the gospel and his love and his grace, they don't really have a context and they don't have much power to affect your heart. Now, there's something else that's so important to see in this picture. <laughs> Not only is Isaiah overwhelmed by the holiness of God, even more importantly, he's struck and supremely aware of his sin. And, and, and the imagery that's here, I think, is very interesting because he is a prophet. And what is it that he's supremely aware of? What inadequacy is he supremely aware of? His lips. This is fascinating. He's worshiping. Worshiping, then as now, generally involves saying things, praying prayers, singing psalms. He's called to speak on God's behalf. All the things that he's called to do, he's supremely aware of his inaccuracy to do any of it. I'm a man of sinful lips, and I live among a people of sinful lips. But what happens in this story? I mean, it's one thing to see this amazing vision of God and his holiness and the smoke and all that stuff. But what's even more amazing, what's even more amazing is this, this picture of the seraphim going to the altar now, do, do you understand that what happened at the altar in the temple is that animals were sacrificed and burned? And there was very, very clear ritual involved in how that was done so that you, the worshiper, would know that this animal is dying in my place because I deserve death. I have offended the God who made me for himself, and I've refused to live for him. Instead, I've decided to live for myself. And so there's this great need for me to be forgiven. And God, in the ceremony and the ritual that he's given them in the temple, has shown them that the, there is hope, that there is a way that you can have your sin covered. And yet, built into the sacrificial system is the message that it's not really working. Yes, there is need, and I'm going to provide for your sin, but this animal isn't it. This animal isn't it. 
And yet what you understand is when the seraphim takes this coal, this, and it's a very interesting image because in the Bible, in the Old Testament, fire is not used as a cleansing image. There are places in the New Testament, and there's a few places where like refining gold sort of ideas, but generally the idea that you would burn something to make it clean is, is not a biblical message. The reason that this is clean is not because he gets touched with a live, fiery coal, but because it's a live, fiery coal from the altar. The, the text makes very clear that this is from the altar. You, you, can sort of, you can see the picture. The seraphim deliberately goes over to the altar with tongs, picks up a coal, brings it over to Isaiah, and touches it to his lips and says... See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Right? Isaiah has seen that he has no hope as he stands before the Lord. But then the Lord initiates and says, no, you can be here. Not only that, but I'm going to touch you at the place of shame where you most feel inadequate to be in my presence or to be used by me. At that very place, I'm going to touch you with my cleansing power. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Because I know that when we think about what God may want us to do for him with our lives, we can very quickly think of all these reasons why we couldn't serve him as we might want to. Now, some of you may be, I'm not sure I want to serve a God like this. All right, well, keep hanging out with us, and we hope to, we hope to, to give you a, a taste of how glorious this God is and how there's no greater pleasure than to serve him and to live for him. It's what he made us for. And the sooner we quit fighting against it, the sooner we'll find that this is really what, what life is about. And yet, once you begin to enter into that journey, one of the things that so often happens is you begin to realize, I'm so inadequate for this. I, I, I fail in so many ways. I let him down. Even my heart has all kinds of thoughts that are, are so twisted. And, I, I, you know, if, if people knew what I thought, they would never listen to me. They would never want to follow me. They would never let me serve God. God would never let me serve. And whatever, whatever the point is, the place where Isaiah felt most inadequate and most ashamed is the place where God says, this is where I'm going to touch you and say, your guilt is atoned for. You're clean. If the, if the sacrificial coal from the altar, which is a picture of the sacrifice that is going to come one day, if that touches you, if that cleanses you, then you need to reevaluate. You need to reevaluate. You are no longer unclean in His sight. If that sacrifice touches you, everything's different. And that's what happens to Isaiah. This is a picture of conversion. This is a picture of the gospel, the good news, that though he deserves to be blotted out of existence, standing in the holy God's presence, God initiates. Not only does he withhold judgment from Isaiah, but he cleanses him. And then he calls him into his service. Do you see this pattern? God reveals who he is. What does it do? <laughs> no, I can't, I can't even look at you. 
let alone stand before you or serve you. But God comes and says, no, I'm going to cleanse you. And he does. And then God says, who will go for me? Who, who can I send? And how can Isaiah not respond, here I am, send me? God's mercy has changed everything. He owes everything to God. You see, you have to understand the holiness of God to understand what a big deal the cleansing is. And you have to understand what a big deal the cleansing is if you would rightly understand what does it mean to live for God. And it's very important. God does not say, who will send me? Who can I send? And I says, well, send me. And, you know, God, I promise I'm going to do a really great job. And, and I'm going to prove to you that, um, that I'm so good to have on your team that eventually maybe you'll cleanse me. No, that's not the order. I think that's a lot of times the order that people get from Christian churches is that before God can use me, I have to prove myself to him. I have to show him that I'm really fired up for him all the time. Right? I'm sorry if you grew up in a church like that because that's not the gospel. This is the picture of the gospel. The cleansing comes and then he sends us. Because how can you serve God unless the guilt issue is dealt with? See, a lot of people are doing Christian things, thinking they're serving God, but they're not doing it out of a sense that their guilt has already been dealt with. They're doing it to try to deal with their guilt themselves. In other words, they're doing Christian things, trying to make sure that God loves them. And it's not really serving God, it's actually serving themselves. This is the only way that ministry happens. First you're cleansed, then God sends you. And then God can send you into a place where you're going to be a complete failure. And, and you have to know if you're going to get sent into that place that your, your standing before God is not based upon your success. It's so vital for Isaiah to understand that he's cleansed because of the sacrifice, because he's going to get sent into a ministry that is not really going to have any earthly fruit. He's the kind of pastor who would be fired after a year. Because God says, I mean, what a bizarre call. Who wants to go for me? Oh, Isaiah, great. Here's your job. You're going to go preach to these people. They're not going to listen. You're going to speak visions to them. They're not going to see it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to use your ministry. I'm going to use your ministry to make them even more even more stubborn. Now, it, it, I don't think God is deliberately, I think they've already set the direction of their life. And God has already determined what he's going to do. He's going to bring them some very tough medicine. The imagery here, how long is this going to go on, Isaiah asks, until basically the people from this land are sent off into exile. And as we go through the book of Isaiah, we're going to deal with this issue of God's people being taken out of their land, sent into exile. Why does God do that? And what does it do for God's people? I'm not going to get into that yet, but that's, that's alluded to even here. And yet, even with this fearful prospect of judgment, there's still a glimmer of hope. And it's in the very last verse. It says, even though a tenth remains in the land, a tenth of the people he's talking about, it will be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak, two kinds of trees, leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Now, the hope that Isaiah gives here is not just 
a cool little picture that just like trees get cut down, but sometimes, you know, new growth springs out of those tree stumps. No, the picture here, the holy seed will be the stump in the land, actually takes, goes back to a promise that God had made in Genesis chapter 3. Another one of those chapters where the, the story should have come to an end. In Genesis chapter 2, sin, uh, Genesis 3, sin enters the world, right? Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve are in this beautiful place, in this beautiful relationship with God, and yet they turn away from him and become traitors, ally themselves against him, set themselves up against God, the one who loves them and who created them and made them and walks with them in the cool of the day. And the Bible should have ended right there. Should have ended right there. God had promised, the day you eat of this fruit, you will die. Spiritual death comes to them. And yet, in the curse that God promises, he makes a promise. And he promises that the seed of the woman, that word is used specifically, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And the same promise is being reiterated here. In other words, it doesn't matter how difficult and disobedient my people will be. It will not thwart my commitment to bring the seed who will put to death, death itself. As difficult as things look now, Isaiah, Uzziah is dead. Who knows what's coming? Assyria is on the move, and Assyria is going to come, camp themselves around Jerusalem. I'm still on the throne. Not only that, I'm committed to you. Even though you will experience some of the most difficult trials you can imagine, to be ripped out of your land, sent into a foreign land, still, I'm committed to you. I will bring you back. And even more importantly, through you, O Israel, I will bring one who will utterly deal not only with your guilt, but with your hard hearts. Because I will send one who will live and die in your place. And I will send my spirit to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will write my law on your heart and I will move you to obey me. All of these promises are hinted at in this verse. The holy seed will be the stump in the land. And life will come through this seed. Now, as the Bible goes on, it's going to talk about this. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, there's this fascinating verse where it picks up and gives you a little more hint at this stump. And it says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the book of Isaiah is going to explore this a little bit more. This idea, who is the stump of Jesse? Who is Jesse? Remember? The father of David. Who is Uzziah? Well, he's a descendant, right, of the Davidic line of kings. The Davidic line of kings are not really getting the job done. But there is one who will be everything that the Davidic king hinted at that they could be. There is one coming who will be the full manifestation of what you could only hint for in the very best king that you could ever imagine. There's one coming, the true branch from the stump of Jesse. 
All is not lost because I am the Lord, Yahweh, who's committed to you, the Almighty One who will bring about this branch, this Messiah who is to come. Let's pray together.